Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Uh, today, I want to unpack a mystery that you might not know about. So th- this will be fun, should be a fun lesson. Uh, we tend to think of places in the Bible as holy and nice well, because they're in the Bible, right? Everything in the Bible is supposed to be uh, sort of a good place, if you will. Uh, but sometimes they aren't. And a really good example of this, uh, it's a mystery, really, why this place is even mentioned in the Bible. Here's where I'm going. Uh, and it's in Mark chapter 8. It's a good place to start. I'm going to read just a few verses to you. This is Mark 8, beginning with the 27th verse. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. I think most of us know this story, right? How Peter got it right. I wonder sometimes if Jesus were not the loneliest guy in the world. Nobody really understood who he was or what he was about. And then Peter finally says, I I think you're the Messiah. And, And this was his bright, shining moment. We also know how the story continues, right? Then Peter gets it really wrong. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan and all that. But that's not really the story I want to tell today. What I want to tell you is there's a mystery embedded in this story because they're going to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is one of those places that's not very nice. However, if we can find out why they were there, this may lead us to a new discovery, and that's the fun of our lesson today. Okay, first of all, I want to show you a slide of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if we were to go there today, uh, it looks like another Roman place, maybe with some Roman uh, streets and Roman carvings and Roman statues and such. Uh, But this is less of a Bible place and more of a honky-tonk. Hey, this is less of a Bible place and more like a cheesy casino. Um, Caesarea Philippi um, was a rough town and everybody knew it. So the first people that heard the story, Jesus and his friends uh, went to uh, Atlantic City. Jesus and his friends went to Reno. Jesus and his friends went to the all-night casino. I mean, this is what they would have heard when they heard Jesus and his friends went to Caesarea Philippi. I mean, why in the world were they there? What made it such a such kind of a rough honky-tonk place is that it was a shrine dedicated to Pan. You remember the little half-goat man? And so, for instance, Roman soldiers on leave would go to uh, Caesarea Philippi and do naughty uh, half-goat man things. Uh, and so it's not the kind of place where a Jewish rabbi and his friends would ever go. And and this even, even adding to the mystery, there are lots of places Jesus just would and go. I mean, if we go back to Capernaum, for instance, where Jesus did most of his ministry, the first half of our Gospels, he's looking across the lake at a major governmental city called Tiberias that he studiously avoided. Four miles from Nazareth is a town called Sepphoris, not mentioned in the Bible, but a lovely Roman city with beautiful mosaics. If Jesus were ever there, it would have been as a day laborer uh, with his stepdad. I mean, I could go on and on about places that you can find in close proximity to Jesus, but he just he just steered clear. So that adds a little to this tantalizing mystery. Why in the world would Jesus go to Caesarea Philippi unless something important was supposed to happen there? Now, 
I'm a big fan of reading the Bible. And what I mean by this is reading the whole Bible or reading longer stories than what we do with it. I know in church we can't read the whole Bible, and so we do the best we can. We chop it up in little bits and try to get some meaning out of it. Or maybe we have our daily devotion and we read six to ten verses and then and then we're done. But I believe that we miss a lot of really important stuff when we chop the story up into little bits. And you're going to see this happening between Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9. Because what happens, okay, the verses I just read to you, Jesus and his friends go to Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? I believe you're the Messiah. That's one story. In Mark chapter 9 is the story of the transfiguration. I love this image of the transfiguration from Raphael. It's just sort of the classic, right? The classic thing comes to mind when we think about the transfiguration of Jesus. Hey, it needs to be mentioned that the transfiguration is important. It's strange and it's hard to interpret, but it's important. It's recorded in all three of the first synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them synoptic because they share the same view. And Matthew and Luke have almost all of Mark in them. So they sort of tell the story the same shape, same way. They all remember the transfiguration. They didn't leave that out. The transfiguration is alluded to in the first chapter of John and it's referenced in the second letter of Peter. And there are very few stories that are mentioned in in so many different places in that way. So the transfiguration, first of all, uh, we can say it may be strange, but there must be something there. But let's talk about what we remember about the story and see if we can't uh, begin to unpack this mystery between Caesarea Philippi and uh, and the transfiguration. First of all, we're told in Mark chapter 9, for instance, in their telling, that Jesus and Peter and James and John go to a high mountain apart. It's a high mountain apart, and there Jesus begins to glow white. His face and his, his, his clothing all have a glow to them. There's a cloud and there's smoke, and then there's the appearance of Moses and Elijah talking with him. And, and remember, Peter Peter wants to, wants to contain it. He says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three dwelling places or three tents or three booths uh, so, that we can, so that we can mark the spot. And if you want to know what that means, this is probably the part we can understand the most. You know, this otherworldly cloud glowing stuff, I think, tells us that it reminds us that Jesus is God and not us, right? Not simply a sage or the greatest teacher who ever lived, but but the Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the only lesson that we have. I mean, there's something that's just sort of not, in, not, you can't interpret it. I mean, it's just not understandable about the transfiguration, but at least we could say that one ain't about us. That's about God. But then, but Peter, we understand. Master, it's good that we're here. Let us build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, which simply means that Peter just wanted to memorialize it or, or hold it in a jar so that he could repeat it again and again and again. I've got this, you know, analogy that I like to use, and it's really from my own memory. Most of us have been to a 10-year high school reunion and something would have happened really wonderful because you're young and you're still kind of wild and maybe everybody, you know, had some fun and jumped in the swimming pool uh, in their party clothes and they thought that was great. And then at the 20-year reunion or maybe the 30-year reunion, somebody says, I know this is the part where we all jump in the swimming pool. And you're thinking, man, let that go. Uh, That only happened one time. Uh, That's a non-repeatable event. These days, we've had a couple of friends at the church uh, die, and, and of course, funerals are always hard, and it's really hard when you lose the great ones, and, and, and we have. We've lost some real pillars in our community, and I said to the families, um, just remember to look for signs. 
God will send you signs that your loved ones are okay, and they send us signs that they're okay. But those signs are just that. You can't gin those signs up. You can't make them happen, and you can't, you can't uh, put them in a bottle and put a bow on them. Rather, these are just simply gifts of God that come unbidden, and you just need to be present, right? So it pays to pay attention to signs because these, these are things that you're not going to get again. Same thing happens with the transfiguration. Peter, uh, you, can't, you can't build a booth and memorialize this. You can simply live it. And so then the voice comes from heaven, this is my son, listen to him. It's a strange but important story where heaven touches earth. Well, there are two possibilities for the location of the story. I and mean, we, need, we need to explore this for just a moment. Uh, the first slide I'm going to show you is a mountain called Mount Tabor, which oftentimes on a tour to the Holy Land will be referred to as the Mount of the Transfiguration. Uh, Mount Tabor is a mountain in Lower Galilee. It's a monadnock, which is something that geologists will refer to when a, when a mountain is made of a harder rock that simply comes up out of the ground like a blister when all the softer rock is washed away around it. So it just sits up there by itself. It's a cool-looking, cool-looking mountain. And on the top of it, from the from the fourth century on, there has been a church marking this as the Mount of the Transfiguration. So it's a pretty popular spot or, or stop on your Holy Land tour. But let's talk about that for just a second. Um, I need to tell you about churches in the Holy Land. Churches can be an aid to finding things. When Constantine, uh, who was the emperor of Rome in the early fourth century, uh, decided to make Christianity the, the glue, and this would take a long time to eventually become the religion of the Roman Empire. But when it was recognized as the glue that was holding everything together, uh, he sent his mother Helena, Empress Helena, to the Holy Land with a blank check to build churches. Now, the most famous of these would be the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. But there are what I would like, I like to call late Roman or Byzantine churches really everywhere, dotting, dotting the countryside uh, of, of Galilee and beyond. And what would happen is these late Romans would build a church to mark a site. Sometimes you can find a site because it's got an old church on it. A good example of this is from the last chapter of this podcast, which is the man in the tombs. He had a thousand demons in his mind. Well, in those tombs on that side of the lake, there's a, a fourth century chapel uh, that was built based on oral tradition and people going there and marking the site as a place of pilgrimage. And so you can, you can deduce by the presence of that church that you're pretty darn close to where that miracle happened. That's sort of how that works. I'll show you a picture of Edan and me in front of a crumbling ruin here. Now, the picture doesn't look like much, but it's kind of cool to tell you on the bank of the Sea of Galilee, it would be the northwest shore, just above Capernaum, uh, there is a church, a beautiful church, called the Church of the Beatitudes. And they call it the Mount of the Beatitudes. It's, it's the traditional site of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. However, that church was built in the 1920s, and it was chosen simply because it's got the best vista. I mean, it really has the best view. If you want a picture uh, right with your family in front of the Sea of Galilee, it's just, it's just gorgeous with pretty flowers and, and, and beautiful blue water. Uh, but for geographical reasons and historical reasons, even scientific reasons, uh, my pal Don and other archaeologists believe that 
uh, the Sermon on the Mount was preached further down the slope, closer to where he fed 5,000 people with just a few uh, fish and bread. And so for this reason, there's also a crumbling fourth century ruin and Edan is standing in front of that. Now, what you can't see from the picture, and the reason why I'm not with it, in it with him or we're taking a selfie or anything, is because it's a really steep slope. It is right above a sound wall over a really busy highway. So actually, we're both about to fall over into traffic and die. And I didn't know that part. I wouldn't have gone up there, uh, but Don wanted me to see it. And I'm also wearing driving mocks. So anyway, I can't take you there, but I can show you from the highway. Uh, but so, so a crumbling fourth century church can get you close to a site, except when it doesn't. It doesn't always work that way. And in the case of Mount Tabor, we suspect something different. Mount Tabor uh, sits suspiciously and conveniently uh, between Nazareth and Capernaum for a one-stop shop. Look, let's put it this way. If you're a pilgrim and you travel to Nazareth to see where the angel visited Mary and where the boy Jesus grew up, and then you're going to head to Capernaum to see where Jesus preached and where he taught, it's awfully convenient to just go ahead and hop on up to the top of Mount Tabor on your way over there to remember the, the transfiguration. Because the transfiguration, it doesn't say which mountain it was, it just says a high mountain apart. But there are a couple of problems, in addition to being just a little too easy, uh, there are a couple of problems that are, that are real. First of all, it's not a high mountain. Mount Tabor is about 1,800 feet high, which would, I guess, would be high for, for Alabama. Uh, I think, you know, th- that, that would be, be high for us, but there are a lot higher mountains around than Mount Tabor. There's, and then also at the top of Mount Tabor, because it sits overlooking the Jezreel Valley, it had a Roman garrison. It had an army presence on the top of that thing, so they could watch. Uh, it's, it had always been a good military position, so they could watch the Jezreel Valley and make sure that nobody misbehaves. So it's awfully, it's awfully hard for Jesus and his pals to be alone so that the transfiguration could happen. Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, I hope I did, there are two, there are two possibilities. One is Mount Tabor, but the other is Mount Hermon. I'll show you a picture of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon, that's a mountain. That's a mountain like a Rocky Mountain. It's, it's 9,000 feet high in some places. It's got snow on it in the wintertime. There's actually a ski slope there. Uh, Mount Hermon sits at the top of Israel between Lebanon on this side and Syria on this side. And it's just right here at the peak. And right at the bottom of Mount Hermon is Caesarea Philippi. It's right, right here at the top in the north. And um, I, I'm wondering, okay, if Mount Tabor is also not a possibility because Mark chapter eight says they were headed to Caesarea Philippi. Mark chapter nine says that the transfiguration happened. And that's not a lot of time to get way back down there, uh, down there to Mount Tabor. I'll say one more thing about Mount Hermon, which is really cool. I want you to get your mind around geography for just a second. And, and the, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, the, the entity of the modern entity of Israel and King David's Israel are all about the same size. So the, the, the boundaries are about the same and it's roughly the size of Alabama. Now I want you to imagine a breathtakingly biodiverse country that the Bible doesn't even tell us about. It sits on three tectonic plates. I'll show you what I mean. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is an African lake with African fish, African plants, bananas growing all around, bougainvillea, uh, freshwater tilapia that are are native to, to the African continent, all that stuff. You go one hour and a half north which would be one and a half, 
an hour and a half north by car, I should say, uh, which would be several days walking for Jesus up to Caesarea Philippi, and you've got brook trout and cherry trees. And you've got Europe on one side of the Jordan River and Asia on the other side of the Jordan River. And another really cool thing is that all the flora and fauna, the little critters, they don't cross the line. They just sort of know if you're, if you're an African animal, you don't go up there. If you're a European animal, you don't go down there. They just sort of, they just sort of stay the course. So I want you to imagine the state of Alabama. Okay, here we go. State of Alabama where you could snow ski in Huntsville and yet... Um, and yet Mobile would be on the tip of the Red Sea uh, down in the, in the hottest part of the desert. Fascinating, fascinating to me uh, what you can see when you go up there. But now let's talk about Caesarea Philippi and Mount Hermon. That's a good possibility. Not simply, not simply because of the chapters being close to each other, but also something else happened a long time before. All right, I want to show you, this is also near Caesarea Philippi show you a gate. It's called the gate of Dan. And Abraham walked through this. Now, I'm going to ask Janelle to leave this picture up for a while while I talk, because I want you to really take this in. It's a, it's a current archaeological dig. They're uncovering it. That's a canopy over it so that, so that the wind won't hurt it. It's a 4,000-year-old city gate, but you're looking at something that Abraham walked through. You're looking at something that Abraham saw. When I take friends over there, uh, I love to play a little game, and, and this is my, one of my favorite things to do. I call it a get, get, a G-E-T, a get. And a get is simply when you can take your Bible and you can look at a verse, chapter and a verse, and then you can look at something. You can see something that's written in here. I call that a get. And the cool thing about the Holy Land is you can have six or seven of those before lunch. Uh, all through the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Gospels and the New Testament, you can just find these little gets everywhere. You know, Jesus walked here or Elijah walked here. I mean, it's really cool. Well, Abraham walked through that gate, and it's found in Genesis 14, 14. What happened is his nephew Lot, who was always getting in trouble, got himself captured in some little tribal war, and Abraham had to go up there and fetch him. But more importantly, that event of fetching Lot uh, out of captivity put Abraham in that neighborhood far to the north, okay, the, northern, the northern part of what would become the Holy Land, the nation of Israel, far in the north, uh, up to the, to the gate of Dan, because he needed to be up there for a dream. He needed to be in that neighborhood for a dream, which is found in Genesis 15. Can you see some patterns here? Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Genesis 14, Genesis 15. Let me tell you about Genesis really quickly so that you can understand uh, what's happening and we'll see if we can, we can unpack the mystery of Caesarea Philippi together. Uh, Genesis works like this. Genesis 1 through 11 is a poem or a song that talks about uh, prehistory and our fall from a garden that God gave us into into a form of existence that God never wanted. And we can talk about Genesis 1 through 11 another time. But the story of us really begins with Genesis chapter 12. Our modern story begins with 12 when a man named Abraham was asked to leave a city and follow God on a promise. The promise was this, that he could have a kid and some land to give it to, which is all he ever, ever wanted if he would simply follow God and be different in the way that God would ask him to be different. And that would, that would birth the Hebrew religion and then by extension would birth us, a people asked to be different under God. And we could, that's another sermon for another time, but Abraham stepped out in faith. However, the promise didn't come true right away. Abraham, Abraham had to wait for it. 
Look, he's made a promise in Genesis chapter 12. He doesn't get a kid in Genesis chapter 21, and that's a long time. And I too think that we know something about having to wait. Waiting is hard. Waiting can be dispiriting. Uh, Think about this global pandemic we're in right now. Uh, When we first started, we all thought we'd be done by Easter, right? Okay, well, then we'll be done by the summer break, and maybe the kids could go to camp, and maybe we'll be done by fall for for the children to return to school, and so on, and so on, and so on. And now they're telling us maybe a year. You know, this is a long time to wait. We'll, we'll we could just look at the book of Genesis and see that, that Abraham had his moments. And in Genesis chapter 15, he has a come apart. So we all need to give ourselves a little bit of, of slack if we're not handling waiting very well, because Abraham didn't handle it very well. Uh, he, would, he would move forward, fall back, move forward, fall back, move forward. And in Genesis chapter 15, God decides it's time to give him a dream and remind him of the promise. So there's a strange story that needs to be unpacked so that we can understand. Abraham is a Bronze Age man, and he lives in a world that we don't inhabit, but the world is simply this. In a world where you don't have first responders to take care of you, you got to have a covenant with a powerful neighbor. And more specifically, you've got to cut a covenant with the powerful neighbor. So it works this way. If you're, if you're a person with land, you got to have somebody to help you to protect it. So you would cut a covenant with your adjacent neighbor so that any bandit or, or poacher or any stranger would know that if they hurt you or your family or your flocks in any way, there would be retribution from the person with whom you were in a covenant. And it would help if you were in a covenant with someone who's bigger than you and stronger than you. And so here's how it would work. You'd also get a piece of their name. So, okay, this is, I love to do this. If I, my name is Fred the Cattleman, and I live adjacent to Joe the Sheepman, then I would cut a covenant, and a cut would have to have a scar. You don't have pen and paper handy in this world. You got to have a scar to show somebody. So you'd, you'd cut your hand, you'd mingle your blood, just like you did in a, in a tree house when you're, when you're a little kid, blood kin, and you'd cut your hand and mingle your blood, and then you would have a scar, and you'd spit on it, make sure it had a good, good mark to it. And this way, you would uh, be protected. And you'd also have a piece of your neighbor's name. So I'll see if I can remember how I said it. So you're Fred the Cattle Man. Your, your name now is Fred Joe the Cattle Sheep Man, and his name is Joe Fred the Sheep Cattle Man, or however that works, right? And so now you've cut a covenant. Genesis 15 is God's cutting a covenant with Abram. His name's Abram first. So here's what happens. I'll just tell you. Um, he, he's asked to cut animals and birds into pieces. He cuts them in two. Then he falls into a deeper sleep and then comes a cloud and a smoky pot and God moves between the pieces and ratifies the covenant. Abram gets a piece of God's name, Abraham. So that's, that's part of the covenant. He gets a new name, a longer name with a piece of God's name in it. And then there will be a cut. There will be a mark. There will be a sign and that will be circumcision. They will circumcise their male children so that the whole world will know that they are in a covenant with the Lord of heaven and earth who has got their back. See how it works now? All right, now we're getting closer to the mystery of the day. Genesis chapter 15 happens while Abraham is far up in the north. Dan is over there right by Caesarea Philippi. And, And for centuries, pilgrims have gone to the site of Abraham's dream. It's a, little, it's a little mountain, if you will. It's an offshoot of the side of Mount Hermon called the Mount of the Cleaved Parts. That's kind of the best translation I can come up with. And, and it's, it's, it's the same place. It's the same place. 
Let's fast forward 2,000 years and I'll show you a picture of Caesarea Philippi one more time. 2,000 years later, Jesus and his friends go to Caesarea Philippi and we don't know why, right? It's not a good town. It's a naughty town. But up above Caesarea Philippi is the side of Mount Hermon and the Mount of the Cleaved Parts. I believe that Abram's dream of Genesis chapter 15 and the transfiguration of Mark chapter 9 are the same dream. Heaven touching earth again. God appearing in smoke and fire again. Uh, God returning to speak to his people again. God reminding them of a covenant again. You ever wondered why on Easter morning when God raised his only son, Jesus, okay? First Easter day, Jesus appears to his friends in resurrected form. He appears to his friends with scars, with scars. Those scars in Jesus' hands are the signs of the covenant for us today. The Lord of heaven and earth knows my name, The Lord of heaven and earth has got my back. Abram's dream, the transfiguration, signs in our own lives, a dream, being at the right place at the right time, the shining eyes of our children, a red bird, a hummingbird, a sunset, those gifts that we can't control or bottle, but yet they're given and they're only for us, those times when the hair stands up on the back of our necks, those are the times when God touches earth again and again and again And again, to remind us, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Now, go be different. This is why I believe that Jesus and his friends went to a really yucky town. Well, friends, thank you so much for your attention this morning. I hope I've gotten you thinking about the Bible in a new way. It's cool to think of how it hangs. I do have questions for you this morning. Two questions. First of all, how has God spoken to you? Talk about that with your family and your friends. How has God spoken to you in ways that only you could hear? Here's the second question. Have you ever had a moment that you can't explain, but still call it a gift? Well, we'll look for you next week, friends, and thanks once again. Amen.